Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Broadway Bullet, Volume 608. Let's experiment. For November 18th, 2015. Subscribe with iTunes or with RSS and don't miss a single episode. On this episode, Ellie Covan talks about Dixon Place, a home for new and emerging theater artists of all kinds. Joshua Brody of San Diego's The Trip talks about doing theater on location and the trials and tribulations of bringing a show to NYC. We feature a song by Kerrigan Loudermilk, sung by Katie Thompson, and finally, Jim Shankman will talk about the perils and thrills of writing a show for yourself. So grab your ticket and hop on board. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thank you, Sid Gold's Request Room. New York City's original rock and roll piano bar for great cocktails and live piano karaoke with Joe McGinty. Sid Gold's Request Room, located at West 26th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. All right, well, this is your host, Michael Gilbo, and I am two days late with this podcast, and I apologize. We just opened uh, Into the Woods at the University of Great Falls, where I teach, and I directed the show, and uh, I think the fatigue just got to me after opening weekend, but it went well, and I'm kind of glad it was delayed by two days, because just today I got like tons of great confirmation stuff for Broadway Bullet, and the next season starting in January. We've gotten confirmation uh, from the press agent for Hamilton the Musical that we're going to be doing tons of coverage, uh, interviewing actors behind the scenes, possibly some creatives uh, with Hamilton, but a whole bunch. So if you're a Hamilton fanatic, and I admit I've had that cast album kind of on constant rotation over here, you're going to have a lot of fun in the next half of the season. And then discovering lots of new up-and-coming people as well. Also, uh, I'm going to be doing interviews from December 14th through the 18th, and I usually need an assistant or two to help. You'll get to meet some great people, get your pictures taken with the interviewees, uh, help me with live tweeting and Instagramming the interviews. Um, for some of the bigger names, I want to take some tweet questions from our listeners. Uh, so if you are in town in New York around that time and you're interested in helping out from Monday through Friday, the 14th to the 18th, uh, please drop me an email at broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com and uh, let me know if you're interested. All right. And I'll try to get back to you either way. All right. Uh, and we've also got already some other great confirmations. Going to get talk to Andrew Lippa. That's great. A couple other things I don't want to say. They're, they're supposed to be happening, but, you know, in this world, sometimes things happen last minute and change. So, but we're going to have a lot of great stuff. Everybody's pretty excited to have Broadway back in the PR world. So we're going to have some great stuff for you, but that's enough of me talking. We've got a great episode for you. So sit back. <laughs> In the best of company. I have a very special guest here with me. Ellie Covan is with Dixon Place. She is the founder of a wonderful spot that just nurtures all types of artists through 14 different performances each week, which has its uh, history and roots coming from her starting it as a salon in her apartment in France, 
to a salon in her apartment in New York to 26 years running as an incredibly interesting, fantastic developmental spot in the Lower East Side. Welcome, Ellie Covan. Thank you. It's <laughs> great to be here. So I... How do you, how does the word get out? And I guess, what is the mission? What do you hope to do at Dixon place? Cause it looks wonderful. And I, I feel embarrassed that I never, I lived here in New York for 13 years and it was going on, but I hadn't heard of Dixon place while I was here. It was pretty underground for many, many, many years. Um, uh, our mission has always been to, um, really provide a space for artists to develop their work, uh, and themselves <laughs> And their careers, um, so that our what we try and do is nurture them in as many different ways as we possibly can, and we work in many different genres: theater, music, dance, performance art, literature, puppetry, burlesque, and circus arts. Um, my background is in theater, so I'd say probably more theater than than dance and and literature and and, and some of the other things. But uh, it started with with literature. You know, when it started as a salon, it was really literary readings, and it just kind of accidentally became something else. So I, I caught a show there on Friday night, I think. The wonderful kind of eclectic blend of dance movements, some monologue-ish visuals in the back, and the audience was, lo and behold, I felt like an old man there. <laughs> I, I told my stepdaughter, "You, I think you'd feel like the old woman there. It was like a wonderful mix of look, looked like 18 to... 28, all ethnicities, all these people that I've been reading in all the papers and trades that these people don't go to live performance, but they were there at Dixon Place. Uh, is that typical for a show? The, uh, the audiences um, reflect really who the artists are, obviously, mm -hmm. and we have such a diverse range and 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 frankly, we're we're, we're proud of the diversity um, in every aspect of of human beings um and so we do have a lot of young people because we focus on emerging artists we have a lot of established artists coming back or even for the first time to work on new ideas and to get in front of an audience without that pressure of commercial theater but for the majority of of the work that we do it's going to be with emerging artists and typically that's young so the audience reflects that um so that's what is, sort of an, what what is an emerging artist to you that, i think that's a term that's been everybody's wondering a lot about that lately it's a terrible how word. long does one emerge yeah it's a really <laughs> it's a really bad word and if we could come up with a better word even today like yeah. while we're sitting here that would be really great because yeah. it's a it's a difficult word and every lots of people have a different definition of it there's one foundation that only funds emerging artists and their definition is not my definition, um, because, you know, there's so many ways you could put parameters around that. Have they um, made money as an artist? Have they been reviewed in the New York Times? Have they done a television commercial? Are they over a certain age? There are many factors and different definitions. Um, uh, for me, it, it's, it's a little bit broader because, uh, for example, we did a commission with Tony Schlesinger, and uh, I convinced that particular funder to, to fund her show, be, at saying that she was emerging, even though she's been a journalist, she's written books, she's had a column in the, in the Village Voice and other places for, you know, 30 years, but she'd never been produced for a full production. It was her yeah. first commission, her first full, fully produced production. And so when you're talking theater... She's emerging, and she's still making theater now. That was like three years ago, and she was—it was fantastic. Um, so I was able to make a case for her, even though she's an older person who's had a long, successful career, but not in theater. So there's all all different ways. Generally, it's someone who hasn't really had very many opportunities, uh, certainly to work in a professional space. So when it was in my living room, ha. Huh, you know, emerging had kind of a different meaning mm -hmm. in a way. But now that we're in uh, a professional space with all state-of-the-art equipment, it, uh, it has I, a I different meaning. I have to and say, it is a great, fantastic space downstairs. I mean, when I first saw the website and saw your mission, what you did, I go, oh, that's very cool. And it's probably this funky little itty-bitty space. It's kind of, you know, 
ragtag kind of kept up but no it's like an amazing flat dance floor full wall i mean curtains lights all over with great you know programmable capabilities it's a really first-rate space to work in yeah well that was my idea um it was a obviously big decision to take it out of my living room um but i'd kind of had enough uh of that i was in there for most of 23 years in, in my own house um, when did you move to the village to the lower east side We've well, we've always been in the East Village, except for a okay. couple of years on Twenty Sixth Street at the Vineyards Old Space, because we, oh well, I had to get it out of my house, and, <laughs> and we got this residency there. They gave us this very affordable space when after they built their big Off Broadway theater on Fifteenth Street. Um, so we did it two two years there, but otherwise it had been in my room. In my room. <laughs> in my room. It was in my room. I it was very open. Um, for 20, almost 23 years. And then, so six years ago, we moved into this new space, but it took us six years to raise the money needed to build it and finish it. It was six years, um, which is a little longer. I had projected three. I'd heard, oh, forget it, it's going to be five. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people told us not to do it. A lot of different people said, don't do this, you're too small. You know, coming from the living room, having a $300,000 a year budget, they were like, there's no way you're going to raise $5 million and do this, you know? And I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to do this. So I uh, went forward with it. But the the uh, that's a tangent. But yeah. what I really wanted to say was that it was a huge leap overnight from that living room environment to a professional state-of-the-art space that holds 130 people. My living room was like 60 people was crowded. Um, That's a pretty big New York living room. Though. Well, I mean, <laughs> the last one I had yeah. was was a loft, okay. and that was crowded. You know, it was a loft space, but that that's, was tight. Um, it was very homey, very couches and comfortable and everything. Um, but the point is that I thought, First of all, it was important to stay in Manhattan, even though it, real estate was, it was a crazy time to do it. It was, you know, right after the boom, which was insane. Um, and then we opened right at the re recession hit. So it was, that was a disaster. But it was like, uh, you know, really looking at spaces in Brooklyn because Manhattan was so ridiculous and then saying, you know what, everybody's, not everybody, but a lot of the small spaces like mine were gone because of mostly real estate or the directors got burnt out and it was just so hard and funding was lost and, you know, everything. So I said, you know what, we really need a space in Manhattan to stay here. So if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it. Imagine a really professional space for emerging artists. Not only do they not have tons of opportunities to perform, which isn't true now, there's all mm. these great spaces in Brooklyn for young people to perform, really great places, um, mostly in Brooklyn, but not so much in Manhattan. There's really and nowhere. And sometimes it's hard to get some of those higher industry people to be willing to cross the <laughs> the bridge in down into Brooklyn to see the work. Yeah, well, I don't know because I don't deal with casting yeah. directors and such like that. But um, anyway, so I think now for the opportunity for someone to be able to work with a real, you know, lighting designer and sound system and all that, even to do a one night work in progress that may be 20 minutes long to be able to have that opportunity is, 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 is yet another kind of opportunity than what it was for so many years, which was more about just getting up in front of people with my homemade, my father made the dimmer board out of rheostats and, you know, clip on lights. And that's how it was for so long. And it was an opportunity then, but this is like a different kind of opportunity now. So you guys have, 14 performances a week. I, I kind of understand you. one of your wonderful, probably interns or bar that were at the bar kind of explained to me how it flows that because there's an upstairs space. that's a wonderful cafe um, kind of vibe bar, bar, kind of bar cafe, but, but it feels lounge. Yeah, lounge. It doesn't lounge. feel like a bar. It, I mean, you have the alcohol and all that stuff, but it's a nice, comfortable um, space. And then you have the big performance, wonderful space downstairs. So I got the read that, that that show lasts for however long it lasts, in, and that's usually usually a charge. But then upstairs, a free show starts five minutes after the downstairs show starts, and has to end five minutes before the downstairs show ends, so that they can use it as the lobby coming out 
Well, not just use it as a lobby. <laughs> yeah. They got to spend their money in the lobby. Yeah, and, and uh, they need to to, buy to drink. But and, that's our ticket subsidy. Yeah. That's how I, you know I decided to get a liquor license against against again everyone's advice. You know, what do you know about running a bar? What do I know about running a theater? I mean, it's pretty common <laughs> sense, actually. But that's our tickets. That we didn't raise our ticket prices. We haven't raised our ticket prices in fifteen years. It's still ten dollars for students, twelve dollars and fifteen dollars. Um, even though it's this really beautiful theater, um, because uh, we can have that bar, and uh, it's like a nonprofit bar. Yeah. But that that alcohol actually subsidizes. Um, our ticket prices so that we can keep it really affordable for young people, for students, for artists, for ev everybody. So it's accessible to everyone and it's works in progress mostly. So it kind of makes sense. You don't really want to charge a lot of money for that. You want to create a certain atmosphere. So what is the application process like, or if somebody's out there who wants to do something at uh, Dixon place, how do they go about it? I see you have like a long list of curators. <laughs> yes, um, it's true because we have so many different genres. Um, like I said, my background is theater, so I focus my own curation along with my program director. We focus um, a lot on theater and performance art. We do program some of the dance, but we have uh, four different dance curators, um, and we have a, a curator for a puppetry series and three literary series. Those are all different because they're more experts in their mm -hmm. field. Uh, most of them are artists working in the field, um, but they have experience curating and they come up with their own mission, basically. Some of the series have been around for 20 years, but mm -hmm. some of them are new. We're open to people making proposals for new series, but each one is unique. Um, and so they, some curators are kind of by invitation only, mm -hmm. um, but definitely... Not all. Uh, people submit online, so there's a form uh, under the submission guidelines, and uh, it's very easy. But even if we know the artists, we need them to, to, to submit that form because we need all that information to make not just a decision about if we're going to do it, but how we're going to do it, um, how long it is, what are their technical needs, what what is the job, what is the form, and where are they in their careers, and how are they going to promote it? And, you know, we, we, we need a, all that information, e even if we already know them. Um, it's really important. And we, we always need a work sample. Without a work sample, we can't uh, really move forward with the application. Um, like I say, some, some of the curators, because there are, I can't remember how many different mm -hmm. curators who do, most of them do one night a month or one night every two months there's a couple series that are quarterly um but they have their own system if you submit to to that particular some other series that i don't do i will give it to them but many of them are out in the field seeing things and inviting people to, to, to perform um but for the most part with the works in progress i do that with katie my program director and we look at a lot of different um aspects of it like i said we we look at the work, obviously, is number one, the quality of the work. Um, we we look always for diversity in, like I said, a lot of different areas mm -hmm. of, of uh, being a human being and being an artist, looking for uh, diversity, uh, new ideas, obviously. Um, <clears throat> we don't do any, uh, I would say, dead playwrights, uh, but also we are working with the creators. So we don't reach out to actors or even directors really i mean we work with directors when they're in the space we often have a lot of communication with them but we're engaging <clears throat> the playwrights um and the choreographers and the composers if we're inviting them they, they make the submission uh and they bring their team they cast their own show uh they they need musicians they find their own musicians um, so that, that's the way we work. We're working with the creator. We're interested in nurturing the careers of the creators. Um, and we want all the artists, all mm -hmm. the actors, all the dancers to have a good experience. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and that is a priority for us. And I think my staff is wonderful <clears throat> in that way, that making sure that the artists have a good experience. Okay. So your definition of emerging, what kind of playwright or choreographer what level of experience kind of do you ex are you hoping or expect that they have to possibly land a spot with your company? Really, you know, it's just 
so varied. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who have performed at Dixon Place over the years, and even still, who it could possibly be their first time to present something public. It, it, it has, mm-hmm. it does happen once in a while. Um, generally, we are looking um, at people who have done some. You know, they they've presented um, a, a little bit. Um, if if they've only done a 30 minute play um, and we really like it, we might give them an opportunity to go for something longer. So we were looking for people to push their own envelopes, so to speak. Um, So it's the same with choreographers. They might have only done, you know, 10 minute things because 10 minutes of dance Mm -hmm. is is a long time, but you know, so maybe giving them an opportunity, they make a, a proposal to do 20 minutes or 25 minutes. So it's a big stretch for them but we're maybe basing it on a 10 minute work. So there, there's all different criteria um, when it comes to where they are in their careers, or they might be have, like I said, like with Tony, but a career in the performing arts, but now they want to work with collaborators for the first time. Mm-hmm. So they want, they're working on a musical and they're going to collaborate with a composer or someone else is going to write the book or whatever. And, that's then they're emerging in that way that they're trying something new. They're, they've never worked with the playwrights, never worked with the choreographer or something. So that's a new thing for them, even if they have done many plays before. So it's it's such a wide range. It's almost impossible to define where they should be in their careers. I think, you know, sometimes someone sends us a play who has a, a trunk full of plays and never been produced. Um, and sad to say, you know, there's usually a reason why they've never been produced. <laughs> so we get that every once in a while. Well, someone sends us several plays and they have, you know, 110 more and they've never presented anything. And so that that's a kind of unusual situation. But generally people are out there working. If their work sample is more than two years old, it's not gonna it's mm-hmm. not gonna work. People change what they do, their mm-hmm. way of thinking, their way of working, and if they haven't done anything in a few years, probably it's it's gonna be tricky. Well, maybe as we start to wrap this up, what what is it that has continued to drive you for all this time supporting artists and helping develop artists? Kind of a, a nutshell, a wrap-up. Um, I think, well, I need a job, um, and uh, this, is a pr- this is a pretty good one. <laughs> uh, it is, of course, satisfying when you see people... Um, succeed and i don't mean going into the commercial theater or anything i mean get through their night and be okay with it and even feel really good about it um i think a lot of times we tend to remember the the negative thing so if 50 people tell you that you're doing a good job and then one person is miserable and complains that's what you remember (laughs) and you obsess on all day or all night or whatever so I think it's really good to remember, <clears throat> you know, all the really great things that happen. And I think that's what, what keeps me going is going into the theater at 730. That's when our shows start or 10, we have 10 o'clock shows and, and sitting there and, and watching the show. I think that's when I get it back, that energy, I get immersed in it. And I think that's, that's really what keeps me going. It's like, okay, this is why I'm doing it. All the headaches and the, raising money and dealing with all these, you know, insane people, you, I go in there and I say, Oh God, this is why we're doing it. I built a theater for you, you know, and that's why I went through the whole thing and it's worth it. Thank you so much for coming down. Best of luck with everything you got coming up on the grill at Dixon place. Thank you so much. And we have a lot more with Ellie Covan. Um, You can hear her full unedited interview. It's in the feed or it's at SoundCloud or on our website. Uh, With most all of our interviews, we have more than I could put in this episode. I like to keep this main episode a theater magazine. But uh, she has a lot of interesting stuff to say. If you want to hear it, check out the full unedited interview. If you are a regular listener or if you have just discovered Broadway Bullet, I have just set up a Patreon page. Please support our program by pledging a dollar amount for each podcast episode. I'm not going to make anything from these donations. All donations will go to expenses in producing the program and providing flexible, part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the editing, follow-up, and more. 
Visit patreon.com slash broadwaybullet to contribute, or just click the link on our main webpage. Thanks in advance for your support in creating quality theater podcast programming. Listening Room all right, uh, before we get started with our next song, I want to remind people that I'm always taking uh, submissions to feature new musical theater or cabaret-themed music on our show. Uh, I don't know why, but I haven't ever been getting a lot of submissions, and it's a great way to get your work out there. I do say for our listeners that we should have a more steady stream coming. I have a meeting set up when I'm in New York City with a newmusicaltheater.com website, that will uh, help expose new composers to all of you, and hopefully you'll hear a lot more quality stuff from a variety. But we do have in this episode a song by Kerrigan Loudermilk. We featured them earlier this season, and this song is sung by one of my favorites. I interviewed her a couple times and worked with her, uh, the lovely Katie Thompson. This song is called Five and a Half Minutes. And now part of why we're playing this is we're going to be featuring in the January uh, next season premiere a 20-minute radio musical by Kerrigan Loudermilk, also starring uh, the lovely Katie Thompson. So look for that in January. But in the meantime, let this nugget tide you over. This song is called Five and a Half Minutes. Every five and a half minutes The universe expands Four miles And every time I blink Another child enters the world The world has six and a half billion people this year And there are eight million people in this city On this island But right here, right now Somehow you're sitting here I may not ever catch my breath no matter how I try And I may never understand How every single day we breathe 23,000 times Because watching your chest rise and fall The numbers don't add up When all we are is 100 trillion cells 206 bones, 5 quarts of blood 45 miles of nerves, nerves have been made by a man cause a woman would have made us more economically I don't know what that means all I know is that I've seen this scene some years ago and I would swear I'm watching from the stands and I would Like it's some old movie But the script's no good And the girl's no beauty There's the evidence More facts But there won't ever be A science of The way you find Or keep on All right, again, that was Five and a Half Minutes by Kerrigan Loudermilk, performed by Katie Thompson. And uh, send us your music for the listening room at broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. And that announcement about working with newmusicaltheater.com is also something that happened today. Busy days. Like I said, I'm kind of glad this ended up two days late because I have a lot of great news to get to you. But onward and upward. In the best of company. I'm sitting here with Joshua Brody, who is artistic director for The Trip from San Diego. Um, we're catching him in New York because he's just recently closed his uh, production of Orpheus and Eurydice. Uh, how are you doing? Good, man. Good. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay. So um, 
I, I get the word that you at the trip are doing some very good, uh, what should we call it? Experimental theater. Yeah, I, I think we could call it that. I think, that, you know, for us, we like to think of it. I think, um, my, the co-artistic director, Tom and myself, I think it's a little bit just about trying to find, uh, there's a sense we say a lot that we take, um, we're trying to take, find a form in which all the different arts can collide and make love. And I think we mean that both as it sounds and sort of make love and just sort of to make pieces of art that are sort of joyful and putting love out into the world. Um, but also sort of deepening artistic forms. Um, so yeah, I guess let's call it experimental for for ease of, for ease of of use. So when did you get started in San Diego? So uh, I moved to San Diego for um, graduate school in 2010. Uh, we started the trip in 2012. Um, in our first show was in December of 2012. Tom is uh, Tom and I are both alums of the UC San Diego MFA in directing program. And they, and Tom, we didn't overlap, but Tom actually graduated before I got there. Uh, we started this company. We did a, a devised Christmas show called Twas the Night in December of 2012, which was my third year of grad school. Um, and we've done seven shows since. So it's a kind of a pretty big body of work in a relatively short period of time. Okay. So um, first thing, what was the experience like moving the show from doing it in San Diego to bringing it to New York and all the various rules and things yeah. that go with that. Um, so uh, th there are a couple of things. So I think uh, artistically, it's, it's a matter of um, uh, Orieta Crispino, who's the wonderful artistic director of Theater Lab, which housed us. Um, she described it uh, as a kind of translation, which I think is a really great way of putting it, that Tom, as the writer, director, and star of the piece, ended up having to translate from what the way we made the piece originally was in this very large black space um uh, uh mostly used as a dance studio but it's very large the screen at the back that we use the film for it was like 20 22 feet high um it was a sort of cavernous space in which the images of the show kind of emerge you know little two-person three-person scenes the layering of images um and orietta's space at theater lab is like most new york spaces considerably smaller <laughs> than spaces in san diego so it's a it's basically moving from a large black space to a small white space and all of the different meanings. It's like translating something from English to Spanish um, and finding the new meaning of the piece in that way. Um, so there's that whole sort of challenge, which I think was very exciting um, and kind of a whirlwind. We did the whole thing in four days. We had to replace an actor who uh, wasn't able to join us on the tour. So we re-rehearsed a new actor and translated it into a new space in four days. Uh, which was pretty amazing. And then the other thing that was very interesting is that in San Diego, uh, if you need something, you just go get it. Um, there's a way in which uh, in New York, I think people feel a lot of the time just because of the distance and space and difficulty of travel, that you have to be constantly sort of pack animals, that you're carrying around eight bags and someone needs you to go get something. So you go and see if you can run and try and find the store that sells the thing that you need. Whereas in San Diego, it's like I hop in my car and I can go grab it for you. Um, six minutes later, I can get you what you need. That is one thing I enjoy about being back in Montana is that quick grab. Yeah, you you're from Montana. Yeah, I, wow. I, I, I was here in New York for 14 years, but moved back. And now I'm oh, wow. here for a couple of weeks a year to grab these interviews. But yeah. But the wide open spaces, it's like big sky country. You know what I mean? It really <laughs> is. And that's sort of something that we, I think it makes it actually, in a sense, very easy to, not easy, easier to produce theater out there. It, but like you it's definitely a challenge here that you got to like plan ahead. You're you know, there's between the subways or whatever, there's really no super quick trip to grab something you forgot. Right. I mean, so, you know, today we're, we're going to, I, I sort of find it a little lunatic, but we're, you know, we're, we're going to return lighting equipment, which was generously lent to us to Jersey city, which if I look on Google maps is nine miles from where we're sitting right now. Right. The actual space is nine miles in San Diego it would take me eight minutes to drive. And here <laughs> it's going to take us, you know, either 40 minutes to drive with traffic or I get on the path train. It's so all these little challenges of travel and planning your day so that you get up at eight in the morning and you leave the house and you, you can't just run back home to grab something like you're out for the day. And we were doing that this just 12. happened to me for your interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I forgot the dang <laughs> key for my software right. to record this. And, um, and now sh thank gosh, I have a lot of other software and, <laughs> <laughs> and could shift to something else that I'm not quite as familiar with, but still doing the job. Right. Yeah. And it, it totally happens in New York and you can't just sort of run home. And so th there's a, uh, a producerial challenge here, I think in New York that everyone is sort of scrambling and fighting. And of course, everything's just 
a little bit more expensive or a lot more expensive, <laughs> depending on what you're trying to buy. Um, but I, I do think it's been amazing being here. You know, we were so pleasantly surprised with, um, we had sort of sell out or close to sell out audiences almost every show, which was, um, very good for bringing a show in. Yeah. Really yeah. wonderful. You know, something that really didn't have the time to get much word of mouth behind it. Um, you know, five performances of sort of a showcase of a show. And then, but we, the other thing that was great, which is always a good sign for a show is that the audience is steadily built. You know, it was like, we had like 30 people there on opening and then 35 and 40 and 45, you know, that it sort of steadily grew. I think cause people were like, man, you got to go check this show out. What was your goal as a company um, in San Diego and San Diego to bring a show to New York? What were uh, you hoping to get out of this? So uh, the part of what the thing is that we, you know, a lot of what we do artistically is to bring a, con a sort of conscious exchange between the spectator and the performers. We don't do a whole lot of fourth wall stuff. The audience is really sort of there and with us taking a ride in the room. Um, and so what we're trying to do in New York is to make that room bigger, um, try and get to a wider audience. And there are a number of re ways to do that, right? Part of which is to get some industry people to come see the work, um, to just get other New York people who we feel like would actually enjoy the work so that these pieces that we've made are quite small in a sense. They're all tourable. Um, they sort of fit into a suitcase. I literally brought everything we use in this show in two suitcases. So um, we bring the people and the people are the show. Um, and so the goal in New York was to broaden uh, the community of people who might want to see that show. Um, and that means both sort of just general audience and also sort of, like I said, we, we had some great, uh, industry people, people who run theaters in town, people who are interested in the work kind of work we do at similar theaters in town. Um, and even a little bit of press, you know, some people who came and see, you know, even among it's the middle of July, it's 900 degrees outside <laughs> and the New York musical theater festival is going on and people still manage to sort of come out and check out the show. And, and people are sort of interested. We got a lot of emails from people saying, Hey, you guys should come back. Um, and and just knowing that sort of the way that New York is sort of the cultural center of theater in, in, in America, um, it seems sort, sort of, of, in some ways, you know. Um, <laughs> debatable. It's debatable. And I think, <laughs> right. So I think that there's, there's, a, there's certainly a way in which uh, it's just important to sort of touch down in New York and, and remind people that, that there's a cool work being made in a lot of places. So along with that, I'm imagining, you know, um, is there a lot to be gained in the San Diego community by saying that you, your troupe has been in New York and performed in New York? Does that add a you know political cachet to you? That's that's a great question, actually. Um, yes, there is. I think a sort of real pride. For example, you know, La Jolla Playhouse, who has been very supportive of our work. In fact, we presented our second show. Tom directed um, our town at La Jolla Playhouse uh, as part of the Without Walls Festival a couple of years, and they've been amazing um, in their support for us. Um, but La Jolla Playhouse, there's this great um, thing that, that their patrons get very proud when a Playhouse show comes to Broadway, you know, when they send... There's a lot of them. That's a, that's a big development place. Absolutely. For... You know, Memphis ran forever, and Jersey Boys is still running, and all these shows that came from the Playhouse. Um, I know Junkyard Dog's got a new thing they're working on down there that they're hoping to bring here. Oh, really? Okay. So, so yeah, it's like there's, a, there's some great... Um, there's some great sort of stuff about that, and I think that, yeah, people... I think people in San Diego get a little excited when they go, oh, you know, you tick that box and now you've had a New York tour. Um, and this is a piece in particular that we're very proud of and is, is very personal to Tom and therefore also personal to our, our little family that is the company. And so we would love to keep touring this piece all over. And so having a New York checkbox goes, oh, cool. So maybe that, you know, Billings, Montana wants it maybe for a, for a little bit. Billings in Montana? Yes. Yes. Good guess. I got that right. I, I, it was either Montana or North <laughs> It is Dakota. our largest city. Okay, I got that right. Okay. And, and from the sounds, and Missoula might Missoula. Uh, if you're looking at Montana. But, but, good we, but we reach out to a lot of things. What, what what are you preparing for in terms of like a possible tour? I mean, are there things that you have to get in your mind? Or are you, are, are you specifically actively looking to try to tour this around other places? We are. So, you know, we, we sort of submit it to festivals and things. And uh, I can't really go into too much detail about sort of what the next plans of it are um but this piece and a couple of others were sort of we are always looking for opportunities to perform them again um because i think that um i think there's a that may or may not end up being the future of small theater in america actually um is because it's sort of financially untenable at a certain point for small companies and 
tons of New York small companies know this, that you can raise $15,000 to do a show for one weekend in New York, and then that's it, and it sort of goes away. Um, but if you can make a show the way that we've made them with short rehearsal periods for cheap, and then you have the show, it becomes a sort of saleable thing, then both financially and artistically, it can continue to sort of fuel you. You can take this little show on the road, you know, and, and this is sort of what they do in Europe. They keep a repertory system, repertory company, and they play shows all around different festivals at their own theaters for years, you know. Um, and so in, I, I think that would be a beautiful model for us to sort of realize within the company. One thing, have you heard, I actually found out about it through this program, and I'm going to be investigating myself on something, but if you investigate, there's a very, from what I understand, a very large, easily tourable festival touring network in Canada in the summers. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> that is specifically kind of designed for, when I said, for artists to be able to tour City City and actually make some money doing it. That sounds great. Um, I mean, we should absolutely check that I'm, out. I'm about to start researching that for myself and something else, but I, I understand that it's mostly open festivals and hmm. it's designed that you can kind of float through all these places. Well, that sounds great. I mean, that is very much sort of our, I think our hope and our dream with these things is to install it in little places, you know, um, make the piece and continue to bring it around. I think that sounds great. So how do you carve out a niche in your hometown? What is the San Diego theater scene like? How how has it been to? I think the San Diego theater scene's pretty great, actually. I mean, it, I hear, it's I, a, I've heard both. I've heard it's awesome, and we I know we certainly get like the old Globe, you know, a lot, you know, those transfers here to Broadway, right? You know, um, and then I've heard recently, I've heard like, eh, not much going on in the theater scene. So I, I'm just, you know, wondering from your opinion, what what is going on there, and how do you create your own space within it? Right. Uh, so I think that. I mean, it's San Diego is like also the most beautiful place in the continental United States of America. Like, yeah. it's sort of like you have to go to Hawaii to sort of get better. So you sort of, it's very easy to be very positive about everything because you sort of sit on the beach all day. It's great. Um, but yeah, I mean, so San Diego Theater, I think for a city of its size is 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 booming in a way. I mean, San Diego, it has, the thing in San Diego is that the theater has to compete with all these other things that are very much about the leisure of life. Um, in San Diego, it's much easier to go sit on the beach with a cocktail um, than it is to go to the theater. And so I think uh, there, there is sort of a great big regional theater scene with the Playhouse and the Globe and uh, the San Diego Rep have these sort of these grounded institutional theaters, which are doing a lot of great work and doing a lot of uh, bigger work. Um, the analogy I like to use is that there are, it's like about the size of the body of water you're navigating. Like you need the yacht to cross the ocean. You need the ocean liner. But sometimes you need the canoe to get up the little stream and we're the canoe. Um, and we've been able to be very opportunistic. I mean, one of the things that's amazing is that um, little companies like us in San Diego have genuine opportunity that it's hard. I lived in New York for four years? I guess four years before I moved out to San Diego um, after college. And uh, I just remember in New York, it's very difficult because A, there are so many little theater companies, and B, you have to sort of fight your way to the top to get someone to just give you a chance to get someone give you a space to get someone to give you a meeting even then you go it's kind of amazing you know we someone told us put us in touch with someone who put us in touch with someone and the next thing we knew we were sitting down with this meeting with the head of this uh the ntc foundation which um in san diego operates this former navy barracks uh the former navy training command center it's this huge thing in point low it's this beautiful thing and uh alan zyder this amazing guy just let us basically before he leased this barracks to someone else, we just got to make theater in this empty Navy barracks for two months for almost nothing, um, which is like unheard yeah. of in New York, right? Someone yeah, can just yeah. give you a 4,000 square foot barracks for free, basically. Um, and so because of that, just to circle back around, I know that was a long answer. Um, oh, we like tangents here. Oh, good. Okay, okay. So the, the, that there's a, because of that, there's a real way that you can be opportunistic in the theater scene. A lot of site-specific work happening. Um Little companies like ours can spring up and get followings. And we got our first award nomination this year for the San Diego Critics Circle. And it was like in our second year, you know, being a company. And it was kind of amazing. It's amazing the way that there's space for it. Um, I think that the work we do in San Diego is pretty unique. I don't think there's anyone else quite like us, um, which we're proud of. We're very proud of that. Um, but I do think there's space for a lot of different kinds of theater there. That's All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for thank joining you, us. Michael. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Up close. I have Jim Shankman here with me, who is presenting his newest play, 
or uh, himself as an actor and as a writer, the screenwriter dies of his own free will at the Fringe, the International Fringe Festival here. And uh, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, before we kind of get into the details and nitty gritty of this interview, which I'm, I want to talk a lot about, you had mentioned mm-hmm. briefly before we started talking that uh, you kind of used to take what was thrown at you and as the, an actor, yeah, yeah, the right. vagaries of of that getting permission to do your art, right, and uh, and have now since recently decided it's okay to write for yourself and create your own opportunities. So, but yeah. before we kind of talk into that progression, tell us a little bit about your current show. Uh, the screenwriter dies of his own free will is a one act that I'm doing in the Fringe Festival this summer. Um, it's about a screenwriter who is dying, who is and because he's facing the big deadline in the sky, he's learned something about life. And he's for the first time written a serious screenplay. And he's taking it to his oldest friend in Hollywood, his longtime nemesis and collaborator, to sell him on this idea of writing a serious play instead of au noir or sci-fi or gritty violence. And it's a very tough sell. And he is very sick, which is, um, I find, kind of comical. Um, the, the, the play is actually based on a story that was told to me by a playwright about a man who was teaching uh, out at um, Sundance, a, a great screenwriter who was teaching screenwriting out there and was dying and was very sick and was just dealing with the, uh, the humility involved in trying to stay at work and stay on the job when you're smoking so much marijuana you can't think straight and everything hurts all the time. And I thought, there's a, there's a nobility in that, but there's also a humor in it. So that was the start of it. And I realized, now I'm not going to write about a guy who's trying to teach a class at Sundance. It needs a little more... Um, so I took it to Hollywood and just put it in a producer's office where the guy's trying to sell something, give it some conflict. All right. So let's talk about kind of your progression in motion yeah. as an actor. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the things you've done pre-writing for yourself? Well, I came to New York years ago, like a lot of young actors, to be in the Broadway production of Grease. And I, there were about 250 of us who went through that production in the eight years it was on Broadway. And at the time, it was the only play, the only uh, play in, in the city that was employing young actors. And we would go into Greece and we'd get on Broadway and then we'd look around and go, what, what next? And there was nothing there for us. There was no um, theater about young Americans the way there is now. Um, everything is written for young people. It was Camelot. It was, you know, Brigadoon. I was a kid who could sing doo-wop, shuata I couldn't sing Brigadoon. <laughs> So there wasn't a lot of work, and I had to you know, start looking around and taking class and working in regional theater. There was a lot of showcase theater at the time, but Actors' Equity put the end, an end to that back in the 80s. And uh, I remember a friend of mine who was in production out in Hollywood said, your talent, it's a collective noun. Where's the talent? Not the guy, not the actor, all of them, where's the talent? And we really are treated that way, and in a sense we are the children of the industry, and we are infantilized. We are told to sit by the phone and wait for the call, show up and do your thing, and then go away and wait for it to come out. And it's tough. It's really hard. And um, I know a lot of people started writing for themselves, sort of writing one-man shows, that kind of thing. And I never had the guts to do it. I never had the nerve to do it. I never had the confidence. What I think it really requires, so much of showbiz, so much about acting, and writing has to do with confidence. Your, your willingness to put yourself out there is based on the idea that it might just might be good. You know, if you really think you're no good, you, you don't really do it. You don't really take the chance. You don't show as much of yourself. So I wrote this short story about 10 years ago. I, was, I went back to college, went back to Sarah Lawrence to get a degree in fiction. And I wrote a short story about a guy living on the streets who um, had very strange ideas. He was living in a alternate reality where he was being filmed by the streetlight over his head at Thompson Square Park. I didn't write it for myself. I didn't write it for anyone. It was a short story. But I started thinking about it, and I started thinking, well, it could be a short, it could be a play. It's not about me, not about myself. It wouldn't require an actor like me. I wouldn't want to be in it. Mm-hmm. I'll write it. And I wrote it, and it was really tough. And um, I couldn't find anybody to do it. I mean, it wasn't an easy play to do in the first place, it um, because it was about a guy dealing with some very strange psychosexual stuff and God and his family. It's all that stuff that makes people go, you're weird. Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) as an actor, you're taught to put yourself out there to make it about you. 
and it's got to be about you. And so I realized as a writer, it's got to be about me too. And one night I woke up from a dream in which I realized that I was the character in the play. Something happened at the end of the, at the, end of the dream and, I, and something came off of the character and I was standing there in a dream. I went, oh my God, it's really about me. And I thought, yeah, it is. It's about a piece of me that I'm just terrified to present to people. So do it. You know, I could hear my acting teacher, Michael Howard, saying, do it. You got to do it. So I started working on it and I found a director and uh, I put it up at the um, United Solo Festival. The first half of it, the piece about the homeless guy. And they gave me their best actor award. I've never won. I've won an acting award since summer camp. And um, <laughs> that guy's my second one. So the director said, you know, I got to thinking, you know, is this commercial? Is there any way to go on with this? And we realized it needed a second piece because it was only 40 minutes. So I wrote a second piece, not connected, just thematically. And then somewhere along the line, we realized these are two sides of the same guy at different times in his life. And we put the play together and now it's an 80 minute solo piece. And um, that's like 12,000 words. <laughs> that, you know, Hamlet, which is the longest role that Shakespeare wrote is 8,000 words. And you don't think about it, but everybody who gets up on stage and puts on a full-length 80, 70, 90-minute one lakh is saying more words than any Shakespearean actor has ever had to learn. It's really hard. It's, it's tremendously challenging and to keep the play in your head and um, keep the story in your head and to put yourself in the situation. So when I finally did it, I, I was thrilled. It was it was as tough a challenge as I've ever had artistically. One of the biggest challenges that I would think there has to be in, in writing and acting in a one-man show is the drafts it goes through. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah mean, well, this one went Keeping it straight. Of, yeah. I mean, like, you get it down, now it's switched, now it's back, and now it's out, and now it's gone, and now it's in this part instead of that part. Does well, that... <laughs> it's not as bad as if you were the actor and not the writer, because you can always give yourself a break when you're the writer, and you can just say, well, I changed it. I had a better idea while I was standing up there. It's not like I forgot lines. <laughs> So uh, there's some of that. And yeah, you as a writer, look at every line and you get involved in it. But at some point, it's just words. But when you have to get up on stage every day and rehearse it, you start looking at it like microscopically. Should that be a the or a that? Should that be a was or an is? Uh, it, it, you, you get so close to your own writing that you get, you get very dissatisfied. It's very hard to, to like the writing after a while, but you have to. So now the new one you're doing started yeah. off as a one person play, I understand, and then you decided it. Well, it was about. You decided you did not want to do Hamlet again. Right. And <laughs> this was also a short story that I wrote at, at, at Sarah Lawrence about a screenwriter who's going to, to make us to sell a screenplay to a producer he's known his whole life um, on a serious subject. He's been writing popular Hollywood comedy his whole life and making a million for this producer. And now he's decided he wants to write something real because he's. He's dying and he's discovered what life is about. So it's, you know, it's not to be taken entirely seriously, but I thought I could do that. I could play both guys. And there's a great deal of, of um, um, narration in it. So the one guy's narrating and then he becomes the other character. And then I realized no, I need the other actor. And then I had the idea to have the other actor start talking to the audience. Um, but not knowing that the, other, that the guy whose play this really is has put these words in his mouth. He thinks he's talking behind his back when he's not watching, when he goes off stage. So it became very metafictional. Mm -hmm. It became a play about what's a play about. Uh, whose play is this? Is it, is it me telling you what to say and why am I saying these stupid things about myself? This is not fair, don't do this to me. Or is it a buddy picture? And we're just having fun here. Um, and that broke it wide open. So it went from being a fairly sincere and straightforward short story to be a sort of metafictional comedy about Hollywood and yes, I know everybody's written one. Everybody mm. and his brother has been to five or ten, and there's nothing new under the sun that you can say about Hollywood, but you can still have fun. Yeah. Well, one statement you made, and I, I want to go on with this a little bit further. Before we started mm. interviewing you, you're telling me that you, you didn't used to want to write for yourself or yeah. didn't because you said it felt like cheating. Yeah. And I think this is a common sentiment out there that maybe a lot of people feel like they shouldn't because right. it's not the right thing or it'll look too you know, yeah. vanity project. Here's, or, you where, know, here's where my head goes with that. In Hollywood, you can write the script, direct the play and be in it, uh, the screenplay and be in it, right? Judd Apatow. Uh, I can't think of anybody else off the top of my head, but they all do it. 
But if in New York you write a play and you act in it, everybody goes, wait a minute, what's wrong with that guy? Like screenwriting and film directing and acting on film are so easy, you can do all three, but mm. if you write a play and act in it, it's too difficult. Or there's something well, wrong. Well, devil's advocate for just a moment, although I you yeah. know, agree with you. In film, you do have the distinction of being able to do it in third time. If you're, yeah. it doesn't all have to happen at once. Right, you but you can sit back and observe yourself, and you know, and change, ask for another take of yourself, or you know, absolutely. It's just there's a different mindset. They want people to write their own screenplay, put fifty thousand dollars on your credit card, and make the movie, and you're a hero. You do it in New York, people say, that's a vanity project. I don't want anything to do with it. Or it used to be. It's yeah. not anymore. And I think it has to do with writers writing for themselves and, and coming up with such good I think material. I think the, the, the true stigma of a vanity project has been gone for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the internet has you know, yeah. leveled the field in so many ways. But I do think there is still that internal stigma for a lot of artists. Yeah. That what will be, I, I'm playing out, what is it? That they're afraid they're laying out so much of themselves on so. the line? I that, think so. It can be terrifying because you're on stage as an actor and you're going through an intense emotional thing. I mean, if I critique the right. show, I'm, yeah, you, I mean, as an actor, you can go normally, oh, well, it, I, I'm, I'm good in a bad show. What's more psychologically difficult yeah. is it's not a single word from your life. It's not about you. But when you're up there acting in it and bringing yourself to it, you honest to God feel like you're standing naked on the stage and now they know everything about me. Even though it's, there's not a single word in it that's literally about you, if you're playing Biff and you find your father having sex with a hooker, there's something from your life that you're looking at and it feels to the actor like everybody knows what I'm going through. So if you add to that your own words, yeah. then it becomes really daunting, I think. That's, and, and, and it's a good thing to do. It, it's, it's terrifying, so you got to do it brings out the best in you it makes you fearless as an actor that's what it changed me as an actor in that sense so what was your final kind of breakthrough of yes i can do this i can break through all these ridiculous kind of restrictions that that in that are only internal that tell me i shouldn't do this i remember the moment i originally wrote uh, kiss your brutal hands this thing i did in the united solo festival and then in the fringe festival uh for a black man supposed to be a black guy on the street and um people told me well you can't really write that jim you're not black and that's um that's that's tricky that's not your world and and they were right i think they were right one morning i woke up from a dream that the black was coming off the character and it was me underneath it was really about me which i think was true i had made it about somebody else somebody different from myself, so I didn't have to deal with the fact that it was really about me. And then I recognized that it was, and I thought, well, ugh, do I really want to do this? And I literally sat on it for two years, and one day I picked up the script, started looking at it, started reading it, and I was just tremendously moved by it. The way an actor gets connected when he reads a play, reads character in a play, I thought, wow, this really affects me, I could do it. Is some of that fear too kind of inherent in the little bit of really is is there truly anything about my life that's interesting enough to warrant this? Well, I feel like I, I feel like a lot of people go through that when they're writing. Okay, yes, if you're writing about yourself yeah. literally, but this play that I wrote mm -hmm. was not about myself literally. It was about myself mm -hmm. metaphorically, and so <laughs> and so and in that sense, hiding in plain sight, I'm saying in effect <laughs> in this play that I'm um um sexually this character is um has off his meds in the park and he's hallucinating that his social worker is a little girl who's trying to get his attention and it's bringing out all of his sexual urges and all his thoughts and how bad he feels about it and how guilty he feels and how god is responsible for this because the character happens to be jewish and he goes through tremendous angst and trying to keep this little girl away and then when he gives into it he realizes it's his social worker He's trying to give him his medication so he can, you know, uh, get healthy again. Well, when, when I'm standing on stage dealing with a six-year-old girl who then grows up right in front of him, and my feelings about that, that's really hard to do. Because mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not only am I saying I'm dealing with something about me that's different from this, but I did have that thought. Here's a good example. Patrick Myers, do you remember Patrick Myers? No. K2... And okay. Feedlot, he worked for the Circle Rep a lot. Okay. 
he was an actor at Circle Rep. And uh, one day he brought a play to Terry Schreiber, I think it was. And Terry said, this is great. I want to do this play. And Patrick said, oh, this is great. I, I don't have to act. I can just sit in the audience. I, it's not about me. I can just sit out here and relax. And he got to the first preview and the lights went down and he threw up. Because he realized it's his mind on stage. It's his thoughts and feelings and his sensibility about violence and the way men treat each other and their feelings about women, which in that play are very intense and, and violent. He's saying, I'm up there. And that's how it feels. When I walk out of the theater after I've done one of my plays, it is the most um, vulnerable I could possibly feel. People, hi, how are you? What do you think? Yeah. Good time. And I'm like, help, don't touch me. I'm a little <laughs> child now. So are you still acting in other projects uh, besides yeah. the ones you write? Yeah, I am. In fact, that's why I'm saying it. It, it. it really changed me because after I did History of Brutal Hands last summer, I went off and did... Um, Roy Cohn in Angels in America. And um, yeah, that's that. a goddamn difficult <laughs> role. And yeah, deals with a lot of rage and, and um, he's dying, and his fear of dying and his need to control his rage about dying. And so I think I was able to go a lot more deeply into it than I would have been. As, as far as an, an actor aging in this business, have you seen more roles open up uh, to you, less roles? More than I thought. I, <laughs> I remember thinking, oh my God, now I'm 30, I'll never play uh, Treplev. You know, yeah. now I'm 35, I'll never play Ralph and Wake and Sing and all that stuff. But there's still a lot of good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I and maybe not as much, yeah. but there's plenty. There's more than enough. All right. So, uh, what are some of the things you'd still like to do? Are you coming up next on your docket? Well, that's a good question. I've got like a whole bunch of plays that I did not write for myself. I've got like 10 or 12 plays that I've written over the last few years that I'm really trying to get seen or heard. And I'm finding that because I've been in the Fringe Festival now, people are starting to read my plays with a little more uh, seriousness. So I've got um, a couple of theaters interested in one of my earlier plays right now that are taking a good look at it. And I know it's because I said I just had two plays in the Fringe Festival. Otherwise, I don't think they would have bothered. So it's kind of like do-it-yourself thing, yeah. right? In that respect, it's also great for writers, actors to do the Fringe Festival because, you know, they give you the theater and then you just have to do everything yeah. else, <laughs> which is a lot, but it's not as much as, you know, finding the theater, putting the money up for that. Yeah. And, and it does lead places, I think. It's led me to uh, getting closer to producing some of my other stuff. All right. Well, Jim Shankman, thank you so much for stopping down to Broadway My Bullet. pleasure. And uh, best of luck with your run and everything else going on. And, and have fun in the fringe. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Curtain Call. Well, all good things must come to an end, but I got a couple announcements. Our next episode will be our season finale. It's going to come December 7th, and then I hop on a plane to go get some more interviews on the 8th. But next episode, we got a doozy for you to wrap up the season. We have got Catherine Walker, who uh, replaced the lead in The Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder and is going to be closing out that show. And she, her story is really inspirational for all those actors looking for a break. Uh, I really urge this one. We've also got a panel from the Women's Professional League discussing the state of women's roles and uh, what we can do to improve that scenario. Uh, I think there's some controversial statements. Uh, I'm curious to find out what you all think about that, but be sure to tune in for those and more in our season finale. Again, this is my kind of last call before I really have time. So if you're interested in assisting while I'm in New York City from the 14th through the 18th is when I'm doing the interviews, even though I get there a little bit earlier, um, please drop me a line at uh, broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. You get a chance to meet some really great people. And uh, last time, everybody was really good about getting their pictures taken with my helpers as well. So you're going to have a lot of fun, uh, meet a lot of exciting people, and I'd love to meet you. All right. Well, that ends volume 608 of Broadway Bullet. I am Michael Gilbo. I'm your host and the producer for the show, associate producer uh, for this 
season is Caroline Reyes from Texas. Thank you so much, Caroline, for all your help in New York in July. And again, a shout out to this first season's location sponsor, Sid Gold's. Hopefully you'll make Sid Gold's a spot to visit if you're visiting New York for the holidays. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, I tell you. So check that place out. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career. <laughs> 